I'm going to entitle this brief message, Spiritual Circuit Training, Lessons from the Life of Elijah and Elisha. Now, we know from 1 Samuel 7, 16, that prophets in those days had a circuit. They go from like place to place, town to town. How many of you know what circuit training is? I, I do that every week, and I don't like it. I want to confess to you. There was a day when my circuit was Papacitos, Rudy's, Papados, and I love that cheesecake factor. I was faithful, I have to tell you, for many years. But now I've been pressed by the Holy Spirit, my wife and friends, to a different circuit. And I don't always like it, but it's helpful. I may not show it, but it's helpful. Okay, now, for the purpose of today's message, I want to examine Elijah's circuit. But more specifically, I want to examine the last time he walked this circuit with his young disciple, Elisha, who was a brilliant young entrepreneur, who had been called to replace him. Why am I doing that? Because each of the places they stopped illustrates a principle that God wants to touch your heart with. Illustrates something God wants to give you. Now let me set some historical context. Uh, Seven years before this final journey, and biblical chronology is not easy, but approximately seven years, Elijah hit one of his darkest moments. Um, The nation was in horrifying declension and demise. Sexual immorality had become an act of worship where children from illicit unions with prostitutes, both male and female, would be burned alive to the gods. It was a dark and terrible time. 7,000 people out of the hundreds and thousands were left that hadn't bowed to Baal, and God raised up a man named Elijah. He called into Mount Carmel, called down fire, broke the drought in prayer. Thousands of people screaming and yelling, God's the Lord, not Baal. He thought the whole nation had been revitalized. Hours later, the queen Jezebel sent a message and said, you're a dead man in 24 hours. He broke, he panicked, realizing there was nothing else he could do. And he ended up on a mountain called Horeb, where hundreds of years before God had given the Ten Commandments to Moses, and he goes, okay, what did I do wrong? I preached my best sermon. I called down fire. I broke a drought, but what's changed? A lot of tremendous pastors and leaders in America are asking that question. We've got big churches, we're preaching decent sermons, and thousands are coming, but what's wrong? Why aren't things changing? And God says, you're going to go back the way you came. You can't hide here. But you're going to do it differently this time, son. And when you go back, I want you to find a young army soldier named Jehu, a young politician named Hazael, and a young businessman named Elisha. And you're going to impart something to them, but this young Elisha, he's going to replace you. This young businessman. For seven years, this young businessman, after walking away from a massively lucrative business, had followed this old crazy guy around and learned to be a prophet. Because this old man realized, unless I can transfer who I am to people in every sector and segment of society, this country's not going to change. And see, that's kind of it. what's at the heart of Mosaic Church. We don't, church, we don't think 
the world's going to be changed by Morgan or this staff or the elders and John. We don't, we don't believe that. We believe their real job is to equip you to change the world where you live, you see. Now, if God was going to make you into a person that could change your world, your campus, your job, your neighborhood, your profession, your family, what would he do? Like, what would he do in you to bring you to the point where he could use you? What would that, what would that be like? That's the question I want to deal with today. So we're going to look at this little circuit, and there were four places on this circuit. We're going to stay in 2 Kings 2. I'll allude to a few other passages. We'll look at all four places, because each of these places illustrates something God wants to do in your life today. 2 Kings 2, 1, we find that Gilgal was the first place they visited on their final journey, or the four where they started. It says in 2 Kings 2, 1, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, remember, he didn't kind of have a normal end, a chariot came down and took him to heaven, not bad. Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Now, Gilgal is an interesting word. It means to roll something away. It means like to have a reproach rolled off you. And if you remember the story in Joshua 5, 2 through 8, the children of Israel had crossed the promised land, crossed the Jordan River. They were in their promised land. They'd had some victory at Jericho, but now God said, before you go any farther, if you're really going to take your promised land, the good news is I'm going to do a little bit of surgery on you. If you remember what happened is, The Lord spoke to Joshua and he said, I want you to get all the priests and give them sharpened flint knives. This troubles me a bit because they did have bronze in those days. Get sharpened flint knives and every male born in the wilderness, they're not going any farther unless I circumcise them. Now think about that for a moment. Remember the whole older generation, other than the family of Caleb and Joshua, were gone because of unbelief. Moses hadn't even made it because he got mad at the unbelief of Israel and did a rash thing and kind of misrepresented God. He didn't go either. So that meant there were thousands of men ranging in age from a few months old till 40 who were going to get circumcised. I don't want to be crass, but circumcision in your 30s without Novocaine and Lidocaine is a different deal. Now, we know in the New Testament that circumcision is not done in the flesh. It's for men and women, and it's done by the Word of God and by the Holy Spirit. And it is a picture of God coming with His Word into your life and cutting things out that are going to hurt you. You say, God's going to cut at me? Oh, yes, He is. It says in Hebrews 4.12, The Word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. It'll divide between your soul life and your spiritual life. It'll reveal things. It'll show you things. And if you want God's best, it starts when you submit to his dealings in your life. Now, the good news is when you were born again, you got a brand new dad. Isn't that wonderful? God, he's just amazing. You got a new sibling, Jesus, man, he's my older brother, I love him. And I got the Holy Spirit. What he didn't tell you is, you got another big family as well. That was in the fine print. 
You got uncles, aunts, brothers, sisters, spiritual parents, grandparents, and you're not going to like all of them. And you wake up to the fact is that God's not only going to change me, he's not always going to do it directly, he's going to do it indirectly. Like, when Morgan preaches, I get cut on. When I go to small group, people may tell me the truth I don't want to hear. Like, my Christian friends may not always ignore my faults. And we come into a world where all of a sudden we begin to live Ephesians chapter 4, where it says we'll never grow up unless we speak the truth and love to each other. What am I saying? I'm saying your ability to become the man or woman God wants you to be starts as you accept him as Savior, yes, but acknowledge him as Lord and say, have your way. Change me. Reveal what hurts me. You know, Kathy and I are working on 37 years of marriage. We're still in love. We have seven kids. We have a great relationship with all of our children. Walking with friends for decades. Why? Well, yes, with the help of the Lord, obviously. But I've put a target on my chest and told my peers for years. If you see anything that's going to hurt Kathy or I or my kids, tell me. Speak the truth to me. Come talk to me. And it starts there, beloved. This church is wonderful. It's a lot of good anesthesia, anesthesia here. You feel God's love. How many felt God today? Presence. You cry. But when you get that way, you say to God all kinds of things you don't really mean. Lord, whatever it takes, change me. And when he takes you seriously and Wednesday is just falling apart. God, where are you? I'm busy answering your prayer. What prayer? The one you prayed when you got intoxicated in my presence and now you've forgotten. You say, you go up to Morgan, you go, Pastor Morgan, I need a pastor. I know it's you. That feels good to the first time he crosses your will. I know I belong here. And then someone says, listen, you know, your child's great, but if you don't begin to discipline that child, you may have a prison ministry one day, and these things can bother you. And hopefully they're more tactful, but you begin to realize spiritual family at its very essence doesn't just mean love and security, it means change. And if you run from the truth, you'll never change. And you'll hop from church to church and finally hop right out of church, blaming church for the fact that you never really got the change you wanted, but in reality, you wouldn't listen. It's just what happens. Now, once you've been to Gilgal, there's another little place God takes you. You get a revelation, I want to change, I want to grow, I want to be a disciple. Well, then once you get that revelation, you've got to figure, okay, where am I really going to get this? How's this going to happen? So the next little happy place they went, we find in 2 Kings 2.2, Elijah said to Elisha. Now, this is very interesting. Stay here. The Lord has sent me to Bethel. What you're finding now, every time they go a bit deeper in this circuit, Elijah turns and says, don't come. You don't have to go. Stay here. Why does he do that? One, because it's going to cost young Elisha more each time, and only God can do that for him. Secondly, it's voluntary. No one can make you do this. You'll never be recruited to like be a part of this church. Why? Because we've got to recruit you to be a part. We've got to recruit you to keep you. It's God that adds people. It's God that puts people in his body. One old brother goes, I'm pretty much afraid to be in that church. You might control myself. I said, I don't have time. Plus, I can barely control myself. I'm worn out trying to control Jim LaFoon. 
Let God deal with you. I'm serious. We have all these crazy fears in our minds. Now, they go down to Bethel. Now, Bethel is a nice word. It means house of God. And it's a revelation. God's got houses on the earth. And they're called local churches. Not just this one. Lots of great local churches in Austin. But God has a house and God has a house for you. And it's in that house where you're going to meet him more frequently and be changed to meet him on your own. Now, you first find this little revelation in Genesis 28.10. And one of scripture's favorite heroes, and one of my favorites, because he unfortunately reminds me of myself, is Jacob. Hard to believe he was one of the men all the promises of God was going to flow through. His name is beautiful. If you want to name your kid Jacob, it means liar, tricker, deceiver, and supplanter. And I want you to know he spent all of his teen years living up to that name beautifully. I mean, his parents got the right name. He grew up in kind of the, the first family of Christianity. I mean, this was the family. His dad was Isaac, the son of Abraham, the father of Judaism. They call him the spiritual father of Christianity, where sons and daughters of Abraham faith. And even the Muslims honor him as one of the greatest prophets. And Abraham, not bad. They had a few small dysfunctions in the family. He had a redheaded brother named Esau who was kind of immoral and kind of a dog. And, but he was the firstborn, and his dad wanted to give him everything. But the Lord said, no, it's your second son. Dad wouldn't hear it. Mom didn't like it. So she and the teenagers said, we're going to deceive your brother. His brother got a little hungry, you know, traded in um, his whole birthright for a bunch of fajitas from Papacitos. Sorry, it was porridge. I'm not going down for porridge, I can tell you. But anyway, okay. So, I mean, he was deceiving, lying with his brother. I mean, finally tricked his dad. His dad said, time for you to go off to college, boy. He said, why? Your brother's going to murder you. So as a teenager, he stumbles off into the darkness. Like many, he's not just running from dysfunction and pain. He's running toward a purpose because God's not going to forget him. He's young, college age, going to a place called Haran to meet his uncle Laban. Now, Haran means scorched place, dry place. He was going toward 20 of the roughest years of his life, but he was going to have a chance to miss those, and it was called Bethel. A lot of, I was like him. A lot of you are too. You're running from a pain you can't outrun because it's on the inside of you, but you're running toward something yet undefined. You wish you had a spiritual sonogram to see what God was forming on the inside of you to be. The Bible said, he reached a certain place, Genesis 28, 10 through 19, and he stopped because the sun had set. Just got too dark for him to go on. Couldn't see his way anymore. Disoriented. When he fell asleep, he had one of the most extraordinary dreams in the Bible, so extraordinary that in John 5, Jesus talked about it. Heaven opened up and a giant ladder slammed down to the earth and angels began to go up and down it. I mean, amazing. God stood on the top and preached him a personal sermon. Wish I had time to go into all the ins and outs of it. You're destined. You have a purpose. I'll I'll take care of you. I'm going to be with you wherever you go. You're born for greatness. He wakes up after the, the first personalized church service in all of history. He wakes up, kind of a heavenly podcast service. And by the way, if you're only going to church on podcasts, you don't have a pastor. 
When's the last time they asked how you were doing? Okay, forget all that. It's a different message. Now watch this. He wakes up. He said, surely the Lord is in this place. I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, the gate of heaven. He said, Wait a minute, he goes. There is a place on earth where someone can find God and meet God. There's a place on the earth where, like, heaven has a gate. There are places on the earth where I can really hear God, know God. He's done. But he blows it. Instead of staying right there and saying, okay, I don't want to move to you, show me. He said, I'll tell you what I'll do, Lord. I like all this. I promise to tithe if you give me a lot of money. And he took right off. And it took him 20 years to get back to that place. 20 years of being broken and deceived and lied to. I've watched so many people when I pastored past the church. They loved it. They cried. They felt God. They saw something. But they just passed right through. A lot of times they went to the scorch place. See, God has a house for you. If it's not this local church, it's one. He'll place you in it. He'll put you in it. That's where you meet God, know God, find God. You're equipped to serve him. And if you miss that step, you'll never, ever be what you're called to be. Pastor Jim, I don't know. I need to go to church. I just pick a podcast every week. Really? Somebody said, I've been listening to so-and-so on podcasts. I said, did you know he was an alcoholic? They said, no. I said, it might help you to know that. What do you think? Well, well Pastor Jim, well, huh? Uh, did you know what they believe about the Trinity? Uh, no, I don't really know. Really, it might help you to know that. Yeah. Information and transformation are two very different things. You get all kinds of great religious inspiration and information on the internet. But transformation takes place in God's house with God's people. When we come together to worship, God says, I inhabit it. So he left Bethel and they're going on the way to Jericho. Third place they stopped the city of Jericho. Then Elijah said to him, stay here, Elisha. The Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he replied, as surely as the Lord lives and I live, I'm not leaving you. You're not getting rid of me. <laughs> I've been following you seven years. You're not getting rid of me now. Now, Jericho is the third great revelation. God, first revelation is, God, you want to change me? You're my Lord. I want to be like you. I'm yours. Cut on me if that's what it takes. Second revelation is, you've got a house for me. You've got a church for me. I'm going to be changed there, grow there, serve there. Third revelation is, is this, this Jericho thing. Now, Jericho was the first city that Israel conquered when they crossed the Jordan River. But I I don't want to look at that today. I want to look at another time the Lord touched Jericho. And that takes place in Luke 18, 35 through 19, 10. I'll allude to it. Jesus was days away from dying. And the whole Passion Week and betrayed, Gethsemane, crucified, resurrected, all of it. In the last city... He ministered in before going to Jerusalem was Jericho. 
I think he chose it last because it was the first one the children of Israel went to. And I think Jesus was demonstrating to us before he died, this is how you influence a whole city. If you're going to come in to your calling as a church, it can't be just about you changing. It can't be just about your little wonderful local church and spiritual family. It's about your city, your region. We know in Luke 18, 35, as Jesus was approaching Jericho, saw a blind man. The blind man began to scream, Jesus, Jesus. was like, shut up, you're messing up the meeting. You're out of order. We don't do that in this church. Jesus. Miracle power flowed out. The man was instantaneously healed by a miracle. He sees, that's fairly serious, runs into Jericho screaming, this Jesus healed me. And he's on the way here. You see, to some of us, that's the essence of affecting a city. If we could just see a miracle, if like a blind person could be healed. And I've been overseas where blind eyes are opening and deaf ears with old fathers and Lord of mine who did, they'd, they'd raise the dead. They'd, I've, I've watched miracle waves hit crowds. And as wonderful as it is, it, it's part of it, but it's not the whole thing. So we just think, if we could just get a big miracle arm and a preaching arm, we're going to embrace this city. But the problem is, if you approach your city one-armed, you'll never be able to embrace it. But when Jesus gets into the city, what he shows us is, I've got one arm of power and preaching, but I've got another arm of touching poverty. I've got another arm of loving people. And he walks into the city... Now, how many of you know he has a few important things on his mind? He's going to be crucified soon. That'll tend to wear on you probably. And I mean, I'm, I'm, think about that. You're going into the most important week of your life, and he's walking, his crowds are all the time, and the, the most vile man in the city, in the minds of people, Zacchaeus, the tax collector, fraternizing with Romans, hated, despised, a cheat, a liar, a robber. He's heard about Jesus, but he's kind of a short guy, and he can't see over the crowd. So he climbs a sycamore tree. Jesus is like all of us. You, you know how you get so busy you can't even hardly hear the Lord. And he's walking and all of a sudden he, he hears his father. Son, stop and look up. He stops, looks up. Here's his father. Go to his house and see him. Probably by the word of knowledge he calls the guy by name. Unless he hears the crowd mutter, Zacchaeus, I must go to your house today. The whole crowd can't, but that guy's a sinner. He's no good. He's, he's robbed our city. He's created poverty. Zacchaeus jumps down from the tree. And they're walking. Zacchaeus can't even believe this holy man's going to go to his house. He's, he's a criminal to the Jews. They're walking together, and they hear the crowd. That's a, how could he be with that hateful man? How could he spend time with that despised man? How could this be? Zacchaeus stops. He said, Lord, what happened? Because the love of God touched him. One, I mean, because Jesus said, I'll have lunch with you. Like, I'll make time in my schedule for you. 
That impacted him as much as the blind man getting a miracle. He stopped. He said, Jesus, here and now, he yelled it out. I'm giving half of my wealth to the poor of this city. One moment, poverty is getting alleviated in that small city. I've looked at Jericho. I'm still there today. Then he said, by the way, all of you I've cheated and robbed, come see me, and I'm going to give you four times the amount I stole from you. Crowd goes crazy. Jesus goes, okay. He turns. Salvations come to this man's house today because he's a son of Abraham. That doesn't mean a son of Abraham by blood. He's a son of Abraham by faith. Something's happened. And then the crowd begins to go crazy, and it says in the first verse of the next chapter, and Jesus, because he was near Jerusalem, and the people were saying, heavens come to earth today. Only place to see it in the Bible. Heavens come to earth today. This must be what heaven's like. Like, the blind man saw poverty's being alleviated. Justice is taking place. This must be what heaven's like. What is Jesus saying? If you really love your city, you won't just preach at it. You won't just believe for power. You'll embrace its poverty. You'll embrace its injustice. You see, typically, the body of Christ gets a bit retarded. Because it's divided over these issues. You've got one half of the body of Christ saying, power, 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 preaching, preaching, preaching. You've got another half of the body of Christ saying, poverty, social justice, poverty, social justice. But when a group of people realize that fully embracing a city is to embrace not just their spiritual needs, but economic needs and pain and injustice. And when God finds a people that will reach out like that, amazing things happen. In my own family, we believe in that. I've got you know, a son on the Syrian border. I've got another daughter down in India, one of five Westerners in the whole area measuring for young girls being educated for the Gates Foundation. We've got another daughter in the Ogala Indian Reservation at 22 living where 80% of the people are alcoholics and there's 100% domestic violence at home teaching four and five-year-olds every day. So as a family, we believe in this. This is the culture we live in. We give away tons of money. So do you want to be rich? I sure do. I want to be rich enough to do God's will and give away everything he wants me to give away. That's how rich I want to be. We've adopted three children. I believe in this. I live this. And when God finds a people, when God finds some church who'll say, you're our Lord, we want to be like you, cut on me with your word and change me. When God finds a business, I love your house, I'm committed to it, I believe in your house. I love my church. But I'm not just committed to my church and myself. I'm committed to embrace Austin. I'm committed to embrace it. Nothing is impossible. Now let's go one step farther. It takes six or seven minutes. Close this and give it back to Morgan. Now this is where it gets really interesting. Because after Jericho... They leave the promised land. At least it's traditional borders. You go a little farther. It says they came to the Jordan River. 
And he parted it, and they walked out of the promised land. Did a miracle, Elijah did. At least it's traditional boundaries. We know two and a half tribes have been on the other side of the Jordan River, but they've been you know, wiped out over and over by invaders. And so Elisha's thinking to himself, okay, wait a minute. What's the deal here? I'm like leaving the promised land. You see, what happens is when God really begins to move in your life and you're coming into a new season, it gets very disorienting. There's this feeling, God, I'm leaving something. For many of us, I'm leaving my religious traditions. I'm leaving my cultural traditions. It's what makes Mosaic Church so interesting. Because to become what God has, there's a leaving of something many times. Of worship styles, of cultural stuff. And this young guy's going, where are we going? We're like, we're like leaving the promised land. Then the old man finally turns and says, okay, you made it. What do you want, boy? He's a pretty bold young man. He goes, I want to be twice as anointed as you. <laughs> Elijah goes, ho, ho. You've asked a hard thing, son. Like, and he raises the dead, multiplies food, calls down fire from heaven. He said, okay, I'll tell you what, son. If you can see me when I'm taken, it's yours. Is that like a game show behind door number one, door number two? No. What he's saying is if you've really been mentored and you've really got a prophetic gift, you'll see me at yours. See, this comes to a time we're disoriented and God's up to something. And if we can't see it, we could miss it. There are 150 other prophets all watching. All of a sudden, a fiery chariot rips down from heaven. An angel snatches Elijah into the chariot and he takes off like a rocket. Elijah goes, Dad, oh, Dad, you're in a chariot. I see it. And the mantle flutters down. You know what? He's the only one that sees it. Only one that gets it. He's the only one that's really been discipled. And he picks up his spiritual father's old mantle. And hundreds of people are now along the shore. All they know is Elijah's disappeared. He, he's gone. The young man goes, hope this works. He goes, okay, <laughs> I hope you're still around now that dad's gone. He takes that mantle and slaps the Jordan River at parts. And of course, goes to Jericho, does a miracle, all kinds of things happen. But all these other prophets go, Where's Elijah? He's gone. Maybe he's on a mountain. We know he's still here. Because they didn't understand, they were missing that God was doing something new and they were trying to hold on to that which was old. Good but old. Where is he? And Elijah said, well, he's not here. He's in heaven. You're wrong. You just want him gone. It says they made him feel so bad. He said, go take three days and try to find him. They finally came back and said, he's really gone. Typically when God's growing a church or growing a ministry or doing something in your life that's a little destabilizing and a little disoriented and your traditions are messed with and it's not like you thought and things seem to be disappearing but because you've not yet understood where you're going what you're leaving seems all the more painful I've watched it. I've been in lots of organizations that change. There are always really well-meaning people who've been really used in the past trying to make me feel bad for embracing the future. It's just what happens. It's hard. But you know what? It's worth it. Because Elisha brought extraordinary change to his nation.
Now, what am I saying? Why are we here? What's God want? He wants to reproduce himself in you. He wants you to be like him. He wants to pour out his gifts and his love and his power on you. But there's a cost to that. Salvation's free. Appropriating its fullness will cost you everything. It starts when you say, you're not just my Savior, you're my Lord. Take your word and change me. Use people to change me. I want this shame. I want these old neural patterns. I want these things rolled out of my life. I'm yours. It starts when we say, this is your house. You've called me here. I'm going to build this church. I'm going to care for this church. I'm going to be a part of this church. It starts when we say, but Lord, it's not just about me. It's not just about my church. It's about my city. You told me to love it, to embrace it care about it. And I'm going to do that. Lord, no matter how disorienting it gets, and no matter if I don't always understand, please let me not lose sight of your hand. Please let me see you even when it's destabilizing, even when everything's shaking. Pastor Morgan, join me up here, please. I want to pray for you now. You just say, Pastor, I want everything God has for me. Just wave at me for a second here. I'm going to pray. Oh, there you are. I'm feeling good. All right, good. Okay. Holy Spirit, truth of it is, this is fun to talk about, hard to live through. Just is. Because you really do cut on us, and it hurts sometimes. You really do, and, and, and you're not even always choosy about who you use to help you. Now, we have a list, Lord, of all the people we're going to allow to help you. But sometimes you don't read it very carefully. You bring people that irritate us to help us. We don't realize their irritation is the very thing that brings to the surface what you want to change. We don't like that much. Lord, this church and spiritual family thing sounds so great, but that's hard too, but it's worth it. And loving our city is not easy, Lord. Heck, we barely love ourselves. So help us. What a great church this is. They're going to grow a whole bunch more, Lord. And in fact, before they're done, this won't be the only place they even meet. And there will be expressions of this congregation in other places in the greater Austin area and other states one day. So we're thankful for all that. Oh, but help us, Jesus. You never said following you would be easy. In fact, you said it would be really hard. <laughs> but it's worth it. I pray one day all of Austin would say, This is what heaven's like. This is what it's like. And Lord, we'd like to be part of the people you're using here. We know we're not all of them, but we want to be part of them. I pray your blessing on every church in Austin today where they love you and are seeking you. You'd help them and anoint them. We love your body and all its components. Help us, Lord.